Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Marcus Peters, an organizer and activist based in Montreal, Quebec. We talk about cooperatives and the social solidarity economy, a new union for tree planters, and why it's important for the left to focus on taking control of the means of production. So welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We're here with Marcus Peters, who is an activist and organizer um, based out of Montreal and a friend of ours. Yeah. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty... We had some technical issues before this began, which was annoying, but uh, it's all sorted out now, so now I'm good. Amazing. Hell yeah, right on. Um, so hey, why don't you tell us about a bit about yourself um, and the work you do as an activist and an organizer? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I've been living in Montreal for the past eight years, um, doing organizing largely out of Concordia University, which is its own sort of dense ecosystem. Um, and recently, well, in the past four years in the summer, I've also uh, been working as a tree planter um, within a planting cooperative. Uh, and a lot of the work that I do is within cooperative organizing and just sort of like democratic economy stuff more generally. So typically within co-ops, but also um, not, uh, not excluding uh, union work or any other kind of campaign organizing. Because um, really what I do and what my focus is, is on trying to democratize the workplace and like the, the economic spheres more broadly. Um, and I arrived at this sort of like this conclusion, uh, my gateway activism was environmental, right? Like I, I came at this stuff as a complete noob. Um, I had no real politics. I was just probably a, a fairly problematic young lad, you know, um, but then <laughs> I, uh, I started reading, like I wanted to find a politics that had never been exposed to me. So I, I just sort of started down the, um, the environmental route, which was pretty typical uh, for people that share my identity. And um, eventually it sort of gave me these like radical conclusions that obviously like colonial capitalism is just ravaging um, everything in its path and eclipsing the chance of a livable future. And then I started reading more about the history of it and was like, this is fucked. Um, so I started getting more involved in environmental organizing. But uh, as many people do conclude, environmental organizing is sort of limited. You're always essentially lobbying. You know, you're always trying to get like a larger organization to make like a better decision instead of being the people that make that decision themselves and like being empowered to take action. So I gradually started shifting more into uh, uh, democratic economy, uh, social economy organizing stuff. And that's where I've been ever since. And um, yeah, spanning between uh, the university bubble in Montreal, uh, we work broader than that, but it's 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 based at Concordia and uh, tree planting in in the West in in BC and Alberta. Amazing. So, for our listeners who may not know, could you tell us exactly what a co-op is in the most simplest language that you can, and also why co-ops are important? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so a co-op is, when you think uh, co-op, there's two things that really distinguish it from a, a capitalist or a traditional business. So the first is that it's collectively owned. 
Um, and this is always, this is usually, and, and in the case of, of, of cooperatives that are uh, useful or interesting, it includes the workforce, right? So a, it, a cooperative is collectively owned by the workers and often by the community. Uh, and the second thing that distinguishes it is it's democratic. So it's democratically operated. It has democratic mechanisms so that the, the membership, which means the owners, uh, can, can exert their, their influence and their decisions on the organization. That's pretty much it. But those two like factors um, that make a co-op therefore create like a, a profound difference in the way that it operates as an enterprise. Um, just by shifting like the, the the empowerment of the people who interact with it into into one of ownership, um, it allows it allows people to and and by giving them you know like a democratic means of, of exerting their decisions, it allows co-ops to take quite radical directions um, that you wouldn't really be able to within a, a capitalist uh, marketplace because you're you're just constrained by by the conventions of the market, right? Like you're always you know. You're always going for the so-called profit motive. Um, I don't know if that was simple, but that's a good. Yeah. So why are they important? <laughs> right, right. That was the second part. They're important because they really are the only model that uh, the left has when it comes to how to create like uh, an enterprise, right? How to create like a business or an organization that produces a good or a service, but also um, like empowers and and actually acts. To, to the benefit of the people that work there and the community that, that they operate out of. Amazing, yeah. I think it, it's definitely true that the left in general spends like a huge amount of time um, lobbying, as you said, or complaining um, about various organizations and institutions that do produce goods and services, but we spend very little time um, building our own uh, institutions that produce goods and services and it's a fact that everyone needs goods and services you know um, yeah, totally. so it's like a huge uh, it's a huge blind spot in a lot of um, left discourse um, you've talked to me before about the concept of the solidarity economy I've also heard you call it the democratic economy um, tell us about the concept of the solidarity economy what is that yeah, the social economy, the solidarity economy, the social solidarity economy, the democratic Ooh. economy, it's got all these nice names, but um, essentially when you hear that, uh, just think uh, cooperative economy. Um, it does include in it room for nonprofits as well. Um, and often it includes uh, like unions or an advocacy groups. It's just basically like all of the groups that you would broadly assign um, as being like the left, like would be would fall under the umbrella of the social solidarity economy. That's sort of like the the new term for it, the social solidarity economy, SSE. Um, it's pretty encompassing. Um, so yeah, it, it's mostly talking about co-ops, but it does include nonprofits. And the reason for that is because um, when whenever we're trying to create like a model that that actually uh, is effective in in its domain, like uh, in wherever it's operating, whether it be a store or a service or whatever. Um, you know, we have the thing that we want to do, the model that we have in our head, then we have to sort of fold it into whatever exists within the, the you know, the law, like whatever the, the co-ops act and whatever province or state we're operating out of um, gives us as a template is what we have to operate within. So sometimes what you what you want is a co-op, what you end up with is a nonprofit because the, the, um, the structures that are in place, like legally don't allow you to, to really actualize them on whatever um, structure you wanted to, to put in place right so but but so that's why there is a, a broader uh 
a broader umbrella to, to encompass all these different things. But broadly, it's just like the democratic economy, right? Like it's democratic organizations that are trying to uh, produce value for their communities that, that goes outside of like the conventions of, of money and, and capital. Right. Just a real quick follow-up question um, related to that. Uh, would you say that Quebec, where we live, is like a good place for co-ops? Yeah, it's uh, one of the leaders in the world when it comes to the social solidarity economy. It's certainly way ahead of the curve in Canada. Uh, Quebec is um, like recognized internationally as a hotspot of the social solidarity economy. Um, I believe it's uh, like 12% of the economy of Quebec is uh, the social solidarity economy. A big chunk of that is probably Desjardins, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. which maybe isn't the best example because uh, it operates <laughs> in, in many ways just like a bank. But, um, but um, no, for, is... for people who don't know, Desjardins is a, a big bank in Quebec um, that is technically run as a cooperative. Well, it is a co-op, yeah, but but it's run, it's a co-op and it's run like a bank. Um, I mean, there is some parts of it that are pretty interesting and pretty radical, like Quebec. Yeah. If you are trying to start up a co-op here in Quebec, your your ability to like find uh, investments and or sorry investors and, and financial aid and that kind of thing is just like you know several times that of anywhere else that you find in Canada. Cool. Interesting. Okay, so um, tell us about Seas. Um, Seas is an organization that you work with, and it's a co-op incubator. What does that mean exactly, and how does it work? Sure. Yeah, Seize, uh, so social socialist economy incubation zone for entrepreneurs. If you want like a perfect acronym for entrepreneurs, but we just call it social economy incubation zone. Um, and also, of course, a play on, on the term Seize that means production. Um, so what it is is a uh, organization. So it, it's an incubator, and what an incubator is, it's like a business accelerator, which means that whenever people want to start a business or an organization. They need a lot of support to get them from like their idea to like a, a real uh, organization, and and that looks like any number of things. Like they need help with the the financing, the the development of the constitution and, and bylaws. In the case of the co-op, right? Um, they need um, like an understanding. Uh, they need like consultants. They need like business plan development, feasibility studies. All those different things are really important and difficult to to obtain when you're trying to launch any kind of organization. So often. Um, people will operate with a business accelerator. Uh, The difference is that we're a cooperative business accelerator. Um, Although again, just like with the definition of the social solidarity economy, you know, it's broader than just co-ops, but that's definitely our focus. Um, So that's what CES is. We're unique in Canada in the sense that we're attached to university. I don't know of another uh, social economy incubator at a university. Um, Although virtually every university has like a traditional incubator. Because incubators are actually pretty boring for, for capitalist ones. They're all just, they have the same model. They just like try and become Silicon Valley. You know, <laughs> they're like, try to find the next like Facebook and ensure that you have like support for it so that you can latch onto it. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, but that is C's. Um, it's also interesting, like for me in that the way that we're funded is through the Concordia Student Union's fee levy system. Um, and there's like, I feel that we're at an interesting intersection generally, because as uh, as you had mentioned before, there is, there is a bit of a blind spot on the left when it comes to like the, the building of like of, of a co-op or a, or some kind of business model to actually like 
fill the gap of like the capitalism that we wish to abolish, right? Um, but there's also a lot of tension between like, you know, people who, who subscribe more to like a communist perspective or an anarchist perspective. Some people want to go for the state and they, they believe that unions and advocacy groups are the way that we like build collective power and we take over the state. And others are like, no, we start now, we build co-ops and we, we create our island of, of you know, of this, this island of uh, socialist utopia of, of a co-op and we sort of like build up from there and ignore the state and the other things that are going on, you know? Um, and I feel that we're in a bit of an intersection in that we're a cooperative incubator that is funded through the fees of a union, you know? Um, and so it's interesting to like operate in that way uh, because it's also just part of our vision to try to like uh, bring those those opposing sides together because historically it's kind of insane just looking at the the way that like movements have not been supporting each other like the mm -hmm. cooperative movement and the um, like and social democratic movements are just like often completely siloed right uh, so that that is something that we want to address it as well but our bread and butter is cooperative development. Cool. And so just like to put it very concretely for listeners, because I feel like a lot of this stuff, like the language of it for people who who don't know about this stuff, I feel like it can be very intimidating because they're like, what does all of this mean, you know? But basically, mm -hmm. if someone was like, we want to start a co-op, like C's would support them in doing that and basically help them with with what? Like figuring out like the laws, figuring out how to like set it up, maybe mm -hmm. funding, like what specifically? Yeah. All of those things. So most people, most of what we do, honestly, is more educational. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you go to any like conference on social solidarity economy or co-ops or anything like that, like virtually across the board, the, the first problem is that nobody knows what a co-op is or how it works or anything, you know. Um, so a lot of what we do is educational. But then uh, after that, it's more about just, you know, because these are collective projects, unlike a sole proprietorship where you just have one, you know, visionary person yeah. who's like off doing their thing like this is about finding and, and consolidating a team of people who have a similar vision um so people are coming at it at various stages but we start by trying to educate people that don't know as much about it and then the next stage is like pairing together people that have like similar ideas and then the third stage if we have a group of people who have similar ideas and, and they want to execute like a, a valuable project then it, it comes into like the tangible steps right so it's like okay it looks like you need, so for example, right now, I'll, I'll try to speak like less cryptically and just speak an example. So right now we're, <laughs> uh, we're incubating a solidarity cooperative bar um, in the Milton Park. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Bar Milton Park Solidarity Cooperative. Um, so this, the stages that this goes through is we're working with like a team of people. Um, some of them want to be the staff, right? So those people were, were pairing with like uh, some industry specialists who are like bringing them up to speed on the, on the various parts. Um, some of them have a, a pension for like policy writing and that kind of thing. So um, we're going to, to be putting them onto like the bylaw development and then pairing them with, with other experts. Um, but what we had to do just like last week was incorporate, right? Which is this whole, process and it's very annoying and, and tedious um we're we're spearheading negotiations with uh with uh, the 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 organization that holds the um the, like the space that they want to move into for the lease signing right um and then after the lease is signed then we're going to be speaking to financers and bringing in like in, investors who can who can give them the startup funding so that they can uh, run for the first couple of years 
Um, so that that's just some of the tangible steps of starting up a business, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it's a cooperative, so it's going to be like collectively operated by the community and the workforce. Um, the workforce in the community will form the board, which is like mm -hmm. the highest decision-making body, right? Uh, and they'll proceed from there, and they'll make decisions collectively, and they'll be like constantly like uh, reassessing and and moving things forward, and yeah, just just sort of as an example of like how mm -hmm. how that how that plays out. Yeah. Um, can I just ask before we move forward one sort of specific technical kind of question? Mm -hmm. Like, because I just incorporated and I'm wondering, like, when a co-op incorporates, do they incorporate incorporate in a different way? Like, is there a specific yes. way that co-ops incorporate? Because they're always asking you who the business owner is, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. in a, when you incorporate a co-op, is it a situation where you can put down like a number of people's names or is it sort of like yes. you actually can? Okay, yep. cool. Exactly. You're incorporating under a different act as well. So here would be the Quebec Cooperatives Act, or there's a French name for it, but yeah. Okay. So you would have, like, in a legal way, it, it like literally is owned by a group of people. Yeah, you need a minimum of three people in order okay. to start a co-op. Okay. Cool. Um, how did this, how did all this get started? How did you start C's? Why did you start it? Uh, so a lot of it ties back to one particular visionary, a mutual friend of ours who, who passed uh, away, uh, which was Ben. Um, yeah. He definitely laid the, uh, you know, the visionary groundwork. Um, but uh, there was like, there was a team from back in like 2015 or so uh, that was like a social economy working group. They worked on uh, a couple of uh, conferences, uh, Transform Montreal, um, but also like more tangibly, they had been executing uh, a number of social solidarity projects out of uh, out of Concordia. So they launched the Hive Cafe Solidarity Cooperative, the Reggie Sparrow Solidarity Cooperative, um, the Woodnote Housing Cooperative, um, just to name a few. Uh, so there was all these huge projects that were going on, and they were really like harnessing that uh, that momentum and uh, used it for conferences. And then the idea sprang forth of like, okay, what we really need is an incubator to like ground this. Um, and start to like replicate it, right? Like take all the this, these successes and just like bring in people and try to like replicate it and make it go exponential as quickly as possible. Um, so that definitely, uh, the, the momentum that was harnessed was kind of like kneecapped a little bit because there was a flare up of, uh, of, of cancel culture at Concordia. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, uh, that really took several years of the left just like brutally eating itself um, while we sort of figured out what was going on. Um, but then uh, we, like the teams, like the team reformed, uh, this, this is kind of when I came on board um, and a number of us uh, came together and started to like really plan out like what an incubator would look like. Um, and we started with just, you know, doing research, getting small grants, starting to do like educational workshops, uh, like, and also like working to the best of our ability on incubating different organizations um, and just slowly building up a campaign until we got to the point where we were ready to, to like launch a full campaign to ask for funding from, from the student body and uh, crucially, the um, the students, uh, like political leaders that were in power were actually like receptive to, to what we were doing. So when those two things aligned, we went for it and we ran a campaign and, and we won. And that was it. Oh, yeah. That's fucking rad, man. Also, I got to say, the uh, I used to work at the Hive um, in the kitchen, the production kitchen. Um, and that was one of the coolest jobs I ever had, man. It was great. 
I'm glad you think so. I mean, it's going through significant restructuring right now, though, um, because the hive, uh, you know, it was probably the case when you were working there, but um, at the time that like this this culture was flaring up, uh, it just became a battleground immediately. Yeah, because... I mean, I definitely, I definitely know that a lot of the um, organizational and sort of like internal politics of the hive was like psycho and probably continues to be um but at the same time uh yeah it was just nice to have a job where yeah you know like it was it was democratically like like managed you know like if i had a problem with something there was like very clear channels for me to go and like make it known as a worker you know um i didn't really have like a boss exactly there was like coordinators and they were very like cool to work with and stuff um and yeah i don't know it was cool so i feel like you've mentioned some of them but um could you just like talk a little bit more about like what kinds of projects Seas has been involved um, with incubating um, or any that you're particularly excited about? Sure. Um, so the projects that we've been involved in incubating, so I've named a few of them, the Hive, Reggie's, the Woodnote. Um, those were like, those, I, I was more involved with the Hive, uh, a little bit with the Woodnote, very little, if at all, with Reggie's. Um, but I think outside of those examples, there's two that would be very exciting one of them would be the breach which is a nonprofit mm. uh, organization. So that's a national media outlet that we incubated last year um which saw some interesting successes i mean and it's uh its first investigative piece was uh talked about within the house of commons like federally uh, a week after it was launched um it's launched like investigations into canadian uh mining um like the activities of our mining corporations uh, nationally, or sorry, internationally, which which has uh, made national headlines in other um, in other outlets like the Globe and Mail, etc. Uh, and yeah, it's it started to really I think shape uh, the Canadian um, uh, like media discourse like in a very gradual way. Um, but for those paying attention, uh, it's pretty clear. Um, also, obviously, it was launched with an interesting set of endorsements, Naomi Klein and David Suzuki and Abby Lewis and all these all these people. Um, so that that was really cool. Uh, it's going extremely well. I'm excited to see like uh, what what they're going to continue to do. Um, but like the one that's closer to home for me uh, would be the planting cooperative that I work at, um, which is uh, called well, it's called Tree Amigos Worker Cooperative. And we're rebranding to New Roots Worker Cooperative. Um, Tree Amigos was the name of the original sole proprietorship. Uh, so in this case, we're actually talking about a company that existed as a private uh, company, like a sole proprietorship, private operation, um, before it was sold to a worker cooperative, which was uh, facilitated by Ben. Um, and now we're a worker cooperative, and we're the only worker cooperative tree planting company in BC. Um, we've been running strong for several years now, uh, and we're considering, I can't really talk about the, the plans to openly because it's like company stuff, but mm -hmm. we're considering some pretty ambitious expansion plans right now um, that that are basically we're talking about like tripling our operations within the next few years. Fuck yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's going super well. Um, and yeah, so those are some examples of some of the organizations that we're working with right now. And I'm hoping that the bar is going to come off the ground uh, within a year or so. Fuck yeah. That's really cool. I also want to say for our listeners who who you know aren't familiar with uh, with Montreal, that um, the Hive and Reggie's are both uh, like the Hive is a, is a cafe restaurant and Reggie's is a bar. 
both of them are like in Concordia, the university, um, and both of them took over from like for-profit private corporations that were running, um, running like food distribution in within Concordia, right? Um, and I think the hive used to be like a fucking uh, like a second cup or something. Um, Java, yeah. Java, you, yeah, right, exactly. And so, um, and and yeah, like the the co-op people at Concordia have done a really good job of slowly sort of like taking these these giant corporations out of Concordia, replacing them with these enterprises that are run by workers and then putting students, like hiring students as workers. And so then those student workers then have control over the, uh, the businesses, which is like really amazing because some of these corporations like that, that are running food distribution in, in major universities. I mean, Java U is probably like whatever, but like some of them, uh, you know, they use like prison labor and, and stuff like that. Um, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the vision of the hive, uh, the vision of all the different groups that we're incubating, we always want them to be scalable. So we want them to be able to like take over um, more and, and take a bigger presence within like capitalism, right? To like yeah. actually transition. Because if it's not scalable, then we actually are just creating isolated islands of, uh, of, of so-called socialism, right? Um, but yeah, you're exactly right when it comes to the hive. Um, the the plan of it is to take over the food contracts within Concordia, right? Yeah. And they and they are just like most universities currently held by massive multinational food uh, corporations whose typical client clientele is usually in the prison industry. Um, so they really value having university contracts because it like diversifies their portfolio of clients, and they they can they can sort of mm. present themselves as like you know not just like a prison food provider kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it just it just goes to show that the the co-op movement, you know, has has goals that are larger than just taking like individual workplaces and making them democratic, you know, totally. but it, it's taking like entire sort of like sectors of the industry and Concordia is enormous, right? Like Concordia, yeah. Concordia is a huge institution um, and taking all that away from from capitalist companies, which is really fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, you were okay. just talking about uh, um, the tree planting co-op. Um, but you were also involved in a tree planting union, right? Yeah, they're, um, yes. <laughs> uh, I, yes, so we, at the same time that we were uh, transitioning um, Tree Amigos Contracting Incorporated to Tree Amigos Worker Cooperative, uh, we founded the Tree Workers Industrial Group, um, otherwise known as TWIG which is the, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Which is the, like the, the planters like union essentially that, that we're building. Um, it's national in scope. There's no other, uh, tree planting, um, like advocacy group or union that exists. Um, there is like a history of it, which I'd be happy to go into. I, I just, uh, we was, we just finished within the zine committee of twig, um, producing like a lot of industry research. This is very topical for me right now. Um, but yeah, so we, we launched this union um, advocacy group and the intention was basically to, to yeah, to fill the void because there is no voice for the industry in that way and to, um, to build like a consciousness at the worker level of uh, the conditions that we work in and to sort of illuminate a path out of them towards something that's more sustainable and empowering. Um, and there's been some pretty tremendous successes that's come from the, the union organizers from TWIG. Um, you know, we work with the IWW, the, the Industrial Workers of the World, which is a century-old labor union, in order to, to have some, like, institutional um, backbone. 
but there's been over $60,000 of stolen wages that have been returned to the pockets of planters through organizing in camps and like marching on the boss, essentially. Okay. Um, yeah, there's been uh, policies that were developed um, by twigs, sexual, sexual assault prevention uh, and sexual assault harassment, sorry, sexual harassment uh, prevention policies that, that have been adopted uh, by the co-op incidentally. Um, which, uh, you know, are planter informed and like actually like grounded. Um, most of the other companies have uh, pretty like laughable policies on these matters, like zero tolerance policies, which just means, you know, that arbitrarily they get rid of people that are associated and wash their hands clean of it. And it's all very devastating. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been going well. We founded it in 2018 um, and there's some, exciting things in the works that uh, maybe I'd, I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fine, yeah. Um, that's cool though. That's really, it's cool to hear that it's still going well. Um, maybe we'll have you on another uh, another time in the future to tell us more about the union. Um, sure. So I guess we can move on a little bit to uh, the, the spicy topics. Yeah, so you alluded earlier to cancel culture. Um, and I know um, in talking to you in the past, you've referred to the toxic left um, mm -hmm. and the impact that this culture is having on um, organizers who are trying to do important work on the left. So mm -hmm. what is the toxic left, Marcus, in your, <laughs> in your opinion? Um, yeah. and, and more importantly, um, what is it like to organize or to attempt to organize um, with this going on? Right. Uh, the toxic left, um, in my view, would be uh, people that have progressive values but have not really developed an understanding of nuance, especially when it comes to matters such as, you know, matters that are close to trauma and matters that are close to identity and experience. Um, so I think that the toxic left for me is usually categorized by people who are deeply entrenched within identity politics and have no real means of uh, like of analyzing collective, uh, sorry, let me rephrase, people who are, who are deeply entrenched in identity politics as a mindset and don't really have a means of, I don't have a good enough answer for this. Let me think. <laughs> I mean, keep in mind who the audience of this uh, podcast is. Um, so totally. we we definitely, our listeners are on the same page, but. No, 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 I get it. I'm just like, for me, maybe I'll just start by saying that I was like working within the so-called toxic left at Concordia as like a member of that, of that toxic left mm -hmm. for a while. So this is still something that I suppose, as you can tell by my answer, I'm trying to like find a definition to, because at the time we didn't have, the term cancel culture we didn't really understand like what was going on like i was part of uh, a team of like an executive people um and we definitely canceled uh multiple people and i was like deeply confused and and just sort of like you know like in a state of double think throughout the whole thing and it took me several years to like <laughs> to detox essentially like yeah. and to just like uh, sort of like work through what was going on and like reground myself um, and, and because like there's a deep uh, like cognitive dissonance that goes on from from you know on the one hand having like principles of um, of like solidarity and of mm -hmm. like the inherent value of human beings and on the other hand uh, having 
like these actions carried out where it's just like the, these uh the intention seems to be to like dispose of people you know um and it's always uh it's always like fused with it seems to always be fused with identity there always seems to be a reduction of like these wider um these wider understandings that we have of like historic wrongs and the way that that they played out along like you know lines of race and gender and 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 other matters but like just sort of taking that sort of historical lens and like arbitrarily reducing it to 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 a single person or a pair of people and having their identities completely embody that um and then just you know after that it becomes very black and white and and uh, there's there's a a demand to like act within lockstep um with uh with the people that are making accusations of any kind it's almost like an inverse of the what is it the magna carta you know it's like it's like a guilty until proven innocent yeah. kind of yeah. is, is the doctrine so um so with me it's like the toxic left would be people who have not yet confronted that in any meaningful way or have not like either by experiencing it or by like seeing it from afar and, and figuring it out and it's almost like a litmus test for me of, of like if i'm going to be working deeply with someone if i'm going to be working a lot with someone that i need to under like i need to know whether or not they have like an understanding of this because uh i've seen and and experienced being like just like stabbed you know like too many times um and it's just so crippling for any kind of movement building um so that was a very long-winded answer that probably didn't answer your question no i mean no it did it did um you got to a few like important points about it. I think like one of the key ways that it plays out, um, and you can tell me if you agree with this, but is that people who are in this mindset, they they love to critique, they love to point out what's wrong. Um, but very often, like that's kind of where it ends. It's like when people are trying to do productive work and change things, they are happy to show up and and sort of say what everything that's wrong with it. Um, and things kind of get imploded that way. And then and then you're left with like, you know, um, organizations falling apart, relationships mm -hmm. being destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we like jokingly call these people wreckers um, because basically like they can come into an organization that's trying to do work and point out everything that's wrong with it or that they perceive to be wrong with it. Um, use like highly emotionally loaded language, back it up with identitarianism and then mm -hmm. blow things up. Um, and like what I find really like inspiring about you and like really important why we wanted to have you on the podcast is because you're doing so much like material organizing probably more than any one human should marcus to be honest um, <laughs> but you're doing so much and you're you're having such um like such like concrete impact and and not just you know doing projects but also like empowering other people like all the work that you're doing is about empowering other people to continue to do good work right so you're you're doing a lot of material work on the left um, and through this podcast, like we talked to so many people who have been like really burned um, by trying to be involved in leftist organizing because they have either been canceled themselves or they have just had like such demoralizing experiences attempting to do work and yeah. like just like watching it all implode in this like horrifying and insane way and then just leaving being like, what was the point of any of that? So I basically just want to ask, like, how do you manage knowing that this that this is the background you know that you're that you're working within this culture that is still very much alive and you're probably getting pushback regularly from people who are wreckers like you've said that you try to approach you know when you're doing um 
a lot of like close political work with someone that you try to get a sense of where they stand on this. Um, but do you have any other strategies or like how do you manage to do so much organizing with so many wreckers running amok? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that it's based on just having gone through it so many times at this point, right? Like, yeah. I feel like uh, knowing a bit about uh, your story, and, like your personal story of having been like viciously canceled and then like have, hitting rock bottom and then you can only bounce as the saying goes, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's like a huge part of it. And also like with teams of people that have also gone through that. So like, you know, I, it's kind of like a thing that happens pretty regularly where you'll get like just arbitrarily attacked by somebody who's obviously deeply traumatized and doesn't have like a, a real means of like addressing or unpacking that and and through the um through the understandings that have been developed on the left um they're like hyper empowered to like confuse like they're they're they're, they're hurt with like being harmed you know <laughs> and then they'll like uh, absolutely weaponize it um, so it's like more common, but I think it's just like the longer that we do this, the more that we're we're able to really withstand it, right? Um, I think that it really is just a matter of uh, like the first few times, um, like I said, like, you know, I was involved in this stuff um, on the other side of the fence. Like I, w I was drunk on the Kool-Aid and mm -hmm. uh, that was hell, you know, that was like. Yeah, it's some, crazy in there. Yeah, <laughs> some deep <laughs> psychological damage. Uh, and it took so long and it was like just such a dark time, like worst year of my life. <laughs> and like the, the years that followed were really, really hard too. But um, yeah, I mean, just like unpacking that and then just like touching base with people. It was sort of like, you know, if you had all like experienced like a bomb going off in a village or something like that. And you're just like, were you, you were there? Oh my God, you were there. I saw you. Yeah. And you just like touch base with people slowly. Uh, but then after that, like, you know, and you see it happen more and you touch base with people and, and there's people having conversations about it like you like you both are right um so after after having some kind of a understanding of it after being able to name it um it becomes easier and easier you know like when it was happening cancel canceling as a, was not even a word that i knew you know mm -hmm. um and like even th the language to describe what was going on was not there Mm -hmm. Like the 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 line, the phrase that initially um, came about, which I still use, is the weaponization of identity politics, because that's often what it is. Um, mm -hmm. But but like even the term weaponization in, in in this case was like not in the arsenal, you know. <laughs> so it's just like there was no words to describe it. So it was just sort of like, and it's very circular. There's an answer for everything, you know. Like yeah. even if even if you're like <laughs> like no matter what your feeling is. There is there is a phrase that is like that is almost like uh, like repeated like a cult to like address mm -hmm. that. It's like oh you're feeling incredibly like depressed and and down about this. Well, maybe it's good that you feel uncomfortable because this is you know, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right. Like, totally. it, no matter how you feel or what you're doing, there's like a response to it because and that's just very important for any of these like thought systems, you know, that you have to like account for every possible emotion and have a way to like fold it back in and come to the same conclusion. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of our listeners are interested in trying to find ways to function within the left and like to still have organizations and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but but are feeling very like hopeless yeah um because of the like total prevalence of of these types of toxic left like nexus kind of people um and yeah i was wondering if you have any like 
concrete strategies for basically like keeping wreckers out of your organization or like dealing with them when they try to do wrecking now that you're more uh, more hip to this shit more hip to this shit <laughs> uh, yeah i would say like any kind of organizing effort you should like you're starting small or maybe not like basically you want to you want to identify some kind of objective like some kind of tangible goal that has impacts that that has a series of steps that gets you to that and that is a collective project and then you want to be putting together like as best as you can like a group of people around that but i think and that you know that's the reason that i'm saying that is because like i think that the means of addressing this is by building a real community like one that is like re a real that is real people that you know mm -hmm. right and that you work with and that you're comfortable with and 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 forming like human relationships and have have those relationships kind of like um cultivated around a a shared uh, a shared project uh, that that's based in in shared principles right um and i think that that is really like all that is needed um in the sense that when you start to like build a project together with people that you know and that you form these relationships with and you start to like know them better um and as long as in this day and age you're you're at the same time like you know addressing an understanding of like things like cancel culture basically as long as you're like understanding like each other as human beings and and having like a better means of of unpacking like uh conflict than you know taking to social media uh then i think you're going a long way towards god this is such a terrible answer <laughs> <laughs> You're basically just like, get offline. No, I mean, it's yeah, important. I mean... It's important. <laughs> but do you talk to the people, like, when you're organizing people, when you're when you're forming these human relationships, like, basically, like, I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's sort of this, this, like, this conversation that happens where as you're forming these relationships, you guys name that this phenomenon exists and you you sort of, like, establish what you you think about it ahead of time, like, before the wreckers come. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, anybody could be a wrecker. It's like Russian sleeper agents, you know, yeah, like, yeah. from the Cold War. Yeah, um, but I think that, like, really, the, the the solution is to have a community, like, a community, a genuine community that's based on, like, genuine human relations is, I think, like, the only real, um, like, antidote to this kind of culture. But, like, you know, we also know that that wasn't quite enough when it emerged because, and I think that's because we didn't have the language to address it and to, to understand right. it, right? So I think that in tandem with building a community, and for me, that, that should be built around like some sort of transformative project, there should be the the simultaneous like uh, sharing of like an understanding of like how cancel culture like operates and how like these harassment and smear campaigns like take root within like the modern left um, and in the various spaces that we operate in. So those are the two things that have to happen in tandem. Um, and there will probably be, because you know, on the left, everybody's fucking traumatized. Yeah. There probably will be like one or two people within like any kind of collective project that will end up like snapping. Um, but I think that really the solution there is to try to de-escalate and just like, you know, humanize as much as possible. And as long as there's like a like um Maybe, maybe it's best to sort of take the, almost like the union organizing method of the IWW, there's a stage that they call inoculate, which means that you prepare people for what 
the how the 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 boss or whatever is going to react to right. to your organizing, right? And I think like a similar thing has to happen when it comes to um, to like pre prepping people for cancel culture. It's like if there are like these these wild public accusations that are that are like you know unverified and possibly can't be verified or anything like that, and are um, you know and just go from zero to a hundred, like then that is you know that is an instance of somebody uh, being canceled or, or that is like the beginnings of it. And like, you know, leaving aside whether or not these are true, like, because they could be, you know, they always could be like, there has to be like a more humane way uh, for both people of like resolving that, you know, and just right. having, having that kind of conversation before it happens. Um, so that if it ever, if it ever does flare up, um, that, that there is like enough of a baseline understanding that you can like de-escalate and hopefully, because again, like this is usually based in trauma, hopefully you can actually like bring in whoever this person or these people are before it gets to the point of like, you know, a Twitter war or something right. like that. So you're talking about having an overt, like explicit understanding of these dynamics already present, like within the organization. Yeah, Which I mean, I think it's really important. It makes sense because it's like so much of this stuff is fear based, right? So it's like when this happens, you know, there's like there's usually like a couple of true believers who are like fully have drank the Kool-Aid and, and are in it. But like most people are experiencing a lot of ambivalence about it. There's a lot of people who don't like the way that it feels and they they realize that it's out of alignment with their their principles. And they also they don't like the fact that they're turning on their friend. They don't like the fact that the org is blowing up, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But they're afraid that if they say anything, they're going on the chopping block too, right? Mm -hmm. But if they know ahead of time that like everybody is aware of these dynamics. And so like there's already been a discussion saying that there's there's like some opposition to these dynamics, then people I think will feel more courage to be able to say that they are feeling uncomfortable with what's happening. And I think that's so often why it spirals out of control is because everyone is afraid that they're going to be the only one who stands up against it or says, sure. hey, I need to take a second. Um, and I think that part of the reason why people are afraid to have these conversations, you know, from the beginning is that they're like, if, even if I bring this up, I'm going to be marked as a bad guy. Right. Yeah. So they don't want to risk it. And they're just kind of like hoping that it's never going to happen. It's never going to come up, but they secretly know that it definitely is, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think like we're reaching a point where, you know, more and more people are having these conversations. So I think that there's more, like there's more security than there was in, in sort of coming out and saying that, that you oppose this stuff. Um, but I'm always like, it's better to start with it. If things are going to blow up in your face, I'm always like, let it blow up in your face at the beginning rather than down the line when you've like invested in this org and in all of these relationships. And then you mm -hmm. find out that everybody there is like hundred percent down with cancel culture. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Oh my God. I um, like that. I like that. What you were saying about inoculating people to it though. I think that that's like actually really important. And I think that like people should be aware um, that like, if you do start organizing and especially if you like stick your head up in like any way, mm -hmm. like there is like a very high likelihood that some like very unreasonable person will start saying really unreasonable things about you. Um, and they might escalate to the point of, yeah, accusations that are just like absolutely like, like criminal level, um, shit, you know? And, yep. uh, and yeah, people should be aware of that and people should be ready for it um, because it's a fucking real phenomenon that happens constantly. And I think that a lot of the time, like in various organizations that do get nuked 
from within by this kind of shit, it's because people were not prepared for it in the slightest. Um, often they, they cannot even name it for what it is, right? Because yeah. like Clementine mm-hmm. was saying, there is this stigma about even like, even, even like acting like cancel culture is like a, a phenomenon that exists is like, can be enough to like mark you, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's all very important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that people like, people don't want to hear that they're a bad person or that they are, um, that, that they are like, that they are like dehumanizing people or something like the accusations are so intense. And if you oppose racism and you oppose sexism and you care about abuse and you care about trauma, and these are your deeply held politics and values and people start saying, no, actually you're the opposite of all of these things. I think a lot of people just fold because they're like, okay, well, I don't want to be a bad person, you know? Um, and so I think like really like, starting from a place of principles, which is what we try to do on this podcast that like, you know, just because someone is accusing your group or you or a person in the group of something does not mean that you have to immediately like fold and submit and say, yes, I am all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you um, not only um, do this sort of like ground up, like trying to protect your, your orgs from the inside um, work um, against the, the so-called toxic left, but you've also done um, some stuff. And I don't know how much you want to get into this on the pod, but we definitely want to ask you about it. This idea of doing like a sneaky takeover of organizations. We were like at a bonfire uh, with Marcus and Marcus was talking about this and we were like, yo, what the fuck are you saying right now? So this is really fascinating to us. Um, but basically the idea is, is that people who are committed to like materialist leftist politics doing a sneaky takeover of an organization that is sort of run by wreckers or has a high toxic left content yeah or has been like taken over or captured by people who like don't have materialist socialist politics um mm-hmm. and yeah so the yeah so the t- t- taking it back yeah yeah so tell us about that, about that. Talk about about that as much as I, I want to preface it by saying that it's not always like cancel kids who are like at the, you know, I'd say that like there's more of a tendency there. I'd say it's an overwhelming tendency when it's the the left in charge of a dysfunctional group. You can almost guarantee that there is like a, a deeply entrenched like identitarian like culture that's going on there where people that challenge it are canceled or whatever, right? But um, in other cases, it's just like a group of right wing assholes or whatever, right? Like, right. or it's just like your more traditional like uh, group of. Assholes, like you know, I just think that yeah, pre pre cancel culture assholes, you know, like the more mundane. Right. Um, but yeah, just just to say that. But I think um, also another thing to say is that like these sort of sneaky takeovers, as you say, um, I just call them coups, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> they only uh, can exist within um, like leftist organizations because like the only way to you know short of like executing some really like uh overbearing like legal or financial strategy um we're talking about like democratic organizations right so right right um so the only way that you can really take them over is is through like some kind of democratic process um the problem that often exists um so in the case of like an organization that's overtaken by records as you say uh the problem that often exists is that after they're in power um, and assuming that there is, you know, that there that this organization has power, it has resources, it has something like some sort of incentives to keep people there. Usually, it's money in the sense that like they, they're just they make it their employment and they they throw accountability out the window or whatever. Um, but after after they're in power, 
um, even if it's a democratic organization, it is just so absurdly easy to like fold it into your own interests so that you can do things like deny people membership of the organization so that they can't vote. You can just not call general meetings so that there is no like election. You can um, you can have like you can anyway, the list is just like really long as to the number of ways that you can be corrupt and just sort of like, you know, skirt around any kind of democratic process to ensure that you are like benefiting from this organization um, indefinitely. Right. So a sneaky takeover um, is when you um, you try to. You know, like I'm, I'm trying to not speak through examples here because I don't want to highlight them too much. Uh, but you uh, essentially you're trying to find what that democratic process is um, as to how like the levers of power in the organization work. Um, and virtually every case, it's going to be there's a board, right? And it gets elected through an annual general meeting because that's like most like nonprofit or, right. or democratic organizations. That's how they operate, right? Um, in which case you and and you know in in this hypothetical example as well, it is guaranteed to be a way I'm describing. Like they are not going to call their general meeting, right? They just like for multiple years won't have it. Because like, you know, there's very little like oversight um on these kind of groups. Like as long as they file the reports, they could fudge them, whatever. Um, so they're they're not going to hold their general meeting. They're going to announce it in an incredibly like cryptic way when it happens that nobody knows about it except for a small pool of their friends, right? right. They're going to ensure that like the only people that know how to or get membership or membership is processed um, is going to be a select pool through their own like channel. Um, those are the kind of things that they're going to do. So what you have to do is just have, start to form like a vision and a picture of like what how they're operating it, right? Like how do you become a member like when are these meetings happening who is on the board currently who is in the staff like right etc right um so a sneaky takeover starts to form when you um when you have enough of an understanding of like how that's going to go and you see an opening through which you can get people to sign up as members so the two things that you always need is you need people to become members mm -hmm. and you need to know when the general meeting is going to be. If you can do those two things, then you can take over any organization, right? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because ultimately like those are, those are the key parts of the democratic process. Like the only reason this is sneaky is because they're not, they're not actually fulfilling their mandate, right? Yeah, like, they're the, being the whole, sneaky. Like exactly, exactly. Yeah. So like you so know, you're out sneaking them. Well, essentially, like most of the time it's just like, you know, corruption and and uh and incompetence, right? So you're trying to like work around their um inadvertent sneakiness to to be sneaky yourself. Um but but ultimately like if the organization was functioning, then it would have a bit like a regular general meeting. That is announced well beforehand and there would be clear steps to get membership and that kind of thing right but you're just trying to like maneuver things to force them into a democratic arena and after that it just becomes like a straight vote like a popularity contest yeah. the reason that it becomes sneaky is because you're not telling them that like that you're sending in members and you're not telling them that you're forming like a board in the background that is like actually a full block of people and all the members are like know who the board is and are only going to vote for those people but none of them are going to like act as if they're they're acting as a unit and that kind of thing so they just arrive one at a time in right. pairs over a period of an hour to the general meeting 
and then they secretly are block voting, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, um, you know, if, if that works out, then yeah, you've just taken over an org. You've just like stacked a board. Um, you'd only want to do this if there's enough open seats on the board that you can at least get a majority, right? Yeah. Um, and then after that, you've you've uh, you've essentially taken it over, and then it's just like you can start to to reroute it down down the steps of it becoming functional again. And so, in the context, because yes, you said that you do this with you could do this with like a, a number of different orgs that have gone corrupt, whether that be you know they're just they're just being like they're just kind of running their org like in a non democratic way, um, whether they are like you know whatever, any type of, any type of asshole, as you were describing, but in the context of Wreckers in particular, or the toxic left or the nexus, because so often people see that organizations get taken over by people of this ideology or this like cult-like fundamentalist way of thinking, right? Yeah. So it becomes very impossible to get in because like, it's all this, everybody there thinks this, right? And this is part of the way that this um, way of thinking, it, they act like they have a monopoly on the left because they like take over power in, in orgs and people are afraid to challenge them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think like one piece of this is that when people are going in to sort of get on the board, you would need people, if, if you're trying to bring in leftists who are not um, wreckers and who are not nexus people, you would need them to be quiet about that. Like, for example, yes, I would not be someone who would be a good idea to try to put on because everyone would be like, that's Clementine Morgan. Like, we exactly know, like, what the fuck she's up to, right? But if you have people who are, like, more lower profile, who are in your communities, who, like, on the down low agree with you about these things, but nobody knows that, then that, those are the type of people who you would want to be sneaking onto board. Exactly. And it comes back to what I was saying about, like, you know, that if you're you have like a project and you're building a community and that kind of thing because like ultimately the, all the people that you're trying to get to come to this meeting to get their membership to vote in a certain way to to be in on this plan are people that you have like a good amount of trust with right mm -hmm. because the like you know possibly um your your attempted coup might come out in that meeting and sparks will fly and people just have to be ready for that and and be like entrenched and know that they have to vote a certain way um to achieve this outcome even if you know, obviously, if if the other side gets wind of it, there's going to be every possible accusation right. thrown at the, you know, like, it's just going to go crazy. So people really have to have, like, a high level of trust that's built up. And it, it is quite, uh, it's a bit of an exhilarating effort because it is, like, this collective on the down low kind of operation <laughs> to go and, and do this, this group of uh, assholes, you know. Um, also, this is also speaking on a very small level, right? Because on the larger levels when it comes to corrupt organizations, it's like, you're not, you know, you're not trying to, you're, you're throwing secrecy out the window because like the example that comes to mind is mech, which was like something that should have been taken over, but instead like the people that were incompetent and corruptly running it uh, just sold it and, and, and now it's not a co-op anymore, right? Right. But, but they had their own means of manipulating those democratic processes, which were quite interesting. What they did was they, um, they had uh, they had their their people that they wanted to run for the board, and they put on the ballot the electronic ballot recommended in brackets beside their name. Uh, and wow. Mech has a membership of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, right? Um, so they did that on the one hand, and then they paired it with having this thing where they would have uh, like contests um, where they would incentivize people to go vote in mass because they would offer like prizes for people for okay. voting. So they would treat it like a contest, so people would you know be incentivized to go vote. Uh, because they want to be entered into this contest to win like a $700 backpack or something like that, right? Right. And then they like they have zero information on the ballot. So they just obviously check all the boxes that say recommended and boom, you just ensure that you have like this, every 
everyone that you need in the board every wow. year. Yeah, and they did that for long enough that they were able to like secure and entrench power, and then they exploited a loophole in bankruptcy law and sold it as a corporation and cashed in. So, that's so nice. like, yeah, it really fucking sucks. But that's, that's like crazy. one of the, yeah, that's like a when you're operating on the massive like you know national company scale, it's obviously a different strategy. So just to say that like what for we're sure. talking about is quite like grassroots level. Yeah. 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 Um, what advice do you have for leftists who want to get into the kind of organizing that you do? Uh, get in touch with us at uh, C's. <laughs> That's our next question. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's so many organizations that are doing like this kind of work. I would just say, like, look them up for wherever you are in Montreal. Yeah. Like get in touch with us at C's. We'd be stoked. Um, but like more broadly, I would say like, look up the IWW, they're a fantastic, like, uh, international central labor union with a lot of, uh, like, honestly, they have the best organizer training I've ever seen. They're OT 101s, they're called. Um, and it just depends on what people want to do. If they want to do co-ops, like, again, it's, it's very much dependent on where you are. Um, there's a lot of different, like, hotspots in, in New York, in Montreal, in, um, Vancouver, uh, and it's um, it's just really like, just like looking at those models and, and finding like-minded people, even like forming a book club, like doing anything that you want to do to just like find that group of people that has the same like interests. And then after you do that, and you you know you can find organizations that like can help you go along the way, then there becomes a pretty clear path. But just like name some examples. So here. In Montreal, like, you know, there's C's, sure, but there's so many other groups. Um, New York, I would just, like, go to the people around, like, the New School, or I would go to, like, the, the Park Slope Food Co-op area, or, like, any of those groups are, are going to have, like, any number of, like, networks of, like, cooperative organizers. Um, anyway, I, I don't, I don't want to just <laughs> babble on about all the different groups that exist, but uh, I would just encourage people to, to, to look for them. And I think, I don't even know how to say this, but I think you have a certain positive attitude, Marcus, that like, I think a lot of people, they feel, they feel such despair and overwhelm. And because they don't know, they feel like they don't know where to begin. Like, I feel like we hear a lot of that kind of stuff. And I feel like with you, you kind of just seem to, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but the impression that I get from you is that you sort of just like run head first into things um, and are just sort of like, I'm going to figure it out, you know? Yeah, honestly, one of the things that I love the most about Marcus is that Marcus is just constantly, like, he'll describe some, like, really insane problem and be like, <laughs> it's so exciting, like, I can't wait to work on this, you know? Be like, it's exhilarating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, which I think is awesome. And also when it's like, yeah, like like Clementine was saying, like a lot of people are like, we don't even know where to start. We don't even know where there is such yeah. a thing as like an offline left. And Marcus is like, there's too many groups to name. Yeah, I, just, exactly. I don't even want to babble on. Yeah. <laughs> I accept your flattery. <laughs> um, but we're going to get you to send us some of those groups and we're going to put them in the show notes. Yeah, to get people sure. connected. Because I think, yeah, people are just feeling they're they're in despair, you know? So you're very um, you're a motivating force for the left. Oh, um, we're all fucked. Like, obviously, we're all going to be like, you know, foot soldiers in the climate war or whatever but we might as well have like a you know a cooperative regiment um or something like that yeah so, <laughs> absolutely that's the approach i'm taking um so for for the stuff that you're doing um you mentioned c's like how can people find out more get involved with any of the projects that you're currently doing 
uh, how can people get involved in the projects? Yeah, I mean, like for, for seas related stuff, get in touch with us. Uh, we really do need to build like, um, like genuine communities around these projects, um, especially the bar, which is like the up and coming one. And it's like a pretty easy one to tap into. Um, for, for other kinds of projects, it's like, you know, if, if people want to speak or ask about them, I'd be happy to. Um, although if they have like virtually no knowledge on it at all, I'd more likely just direct them to, to some kind of like a uh, course or something like that. Um, cause there, there's a lot that exists. There's uh well, so there's co-op zone, there's the C's curriculum, there's the Canadian worker co-op federation runs some really good um, courses as well. There's like a, there's a lot of good educational material okay. out there. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll probably contact you after and, try and get you to send us some links and stuff so that we can share it. And Cs, I'm assuming, just has a website that people can just find on Google yep. or something. And they also have an Instagram. Oh, they also have an Instagram account, right, of course. Yeah, uh, socialisteconomy.ca. Okay, I'm amazing. Shamelessly plugging the entire time. I mean, you got it. You got it. <laughs> that's that's all we want from you. Okay, Marcus, this has been really awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for um, doing this interview with us. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, best of luck with all the things that you do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mark.